Section 9 of Mark Twain's Autobiography. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by John Greenman. The Machine Episode. Written in the Closing Days of 1890. This episode has now spread itself over more than one-fifth of my life, a considerable stretch of time, as I am now fifty-five years old. Ten or eleven years ago, Dwight Buell, a jeweler, called at our house and was shown up to the billiard-room, which was my study, and the game got more study than the other sciences. He wanted me to take some stock in a typesetting machine. He said it was at the Colt Arms factory and was about finished. I took two thousand dollars of the stock. I was always taking little chances like that, and almost always losing by it, too, a thing which I did not greatly mind, because I was always careful to risk only such amounts as I could easily afford to lose. Some time afterward I was invited to go down to the factory and see the machine. I went, promising myself nothing, for I knew all about typesetting by practical experience, and held the settled and solidified opinion that a successful typesetting machine was an impossibility, for the reason that a machine cannot be made to think, and the thing that sets movable type must think, or retire defeated. So the performance I witnessed did most thoroughly amaze me. Here was a machine that was really setting type, and doing it with swiftness and accuracy, too. Moreover, it was distributing its case at the same time. The distribution was automatic. The machine fed itself from a galley of dead matter, and without human help or suggestion, for it began its work of its own accord when the type channels needed filling, and stopped of its own accord when they were full enough. The machine was almost a complete compositor. It lacked but one feature. It did not justify the lines. This was done by the operator's assistant. I saw the operator set at the rate of three thousand m's an hour, which, counting distribution, was but little short of four casemen's work. Mr. H. was there. I had known him long. I thought I knew him well. I had great respect for him and full confidence in him. He said he was already a considerable owner and was now going to take as much more of the stock as he could afford. Wherefore, I set down my name for an additional three thousand dollars. It is here that the music begins. Note, this was the Farnham machine, so-called. Before very long, H. called on me and asked me what I would charge to raise a capital of $500,000 for the manufacture of the machine. I said I would undertake it for $100,000. He said, raise $600,000 then, and take $100,000. I agreed. 
I sent for my partner Webster. He came up from New York and went back with the project. There was some correspondence. H. wrote Webster a letter. I will remark here that James W. Page, the little bright-eyed, alert, smartly-dressed inventor of the machine, is a most extraordinary compound of business thrift and commercial insanity, of cold calculation and jejune sentimentality, of veracity and falsehood, of fidelity and treachery, of nobility and baseness, of pluck and cowardice, of wasteful liberality and pitiful stinginess, of solid sense and weltering moonshine, of towering genius and trivial ambitions, of merciful bowels and a petrified heart, of colossal vanity and... Uh, but there the opposites stop. His vanity stands alone, sky-piercing, as sharp of outline as an Egyptian monolith. It is the only unpleasant feature in him that is not modified, softened, compensated by some converse characteristic. There is another point or two worth mentioning. He can persuade anybody. He can convince nobody. He has a crystal-clear mind as regards the grasping and concreting of an idea which has been lost and smothered under a chaos of baffling legal language, and yet it can always be depended upon to take the simplest half-dozen facts and draw from them a conclusion that will astonish the idiots in the asylum. It is because he is a dreamer, a visionary. His imagination runs utterly away with him. He is a poet, a most great and genuine poet, whose sublime creations are written in steel. He is the Shakespeare of mechanical invention. In all the ages he has no peer. Indeed, there is none that even approaches him. Whoever is qualified to fully comprehend his marvelous machine will grant that its place is upon the loftiest summit of human invention, with no kindred between it and the far foothills below. But I must explain these strange contradictions above listed, or the man will be misunderstood and wronged. His business thrift is remarkable, and it is also of a peculiar cut. He has worked at his expensive machine for more than twenty years, but always at somebody else's cost. He spent hundreds and thousands of other folks' money, yet always kept his machine and its possible patents in his own possession, unencumbered by an embarrassing lien of any kind, except once, which will be referred to by and by. He could never be beguiled into putting a penny of his own into his work. Once he had a brilliant idea in the way of a wonderfully valuable application of electricity, 
To test it, he said, would cost but $25. I was paying him a salary of nearly $600 a month, and was spending $1,200 on the machine besides. Yet he asked me to risk the $25 and take half of the result. I declined, and he dropped the matter. Another time he was sure he was on the track of a splendid thing in electricity. It would cost only a trifle, possibly $200, to try some experiments. I was asked to furnish the money and take half of the result. I furnished money until the sum had grown to about a thousand dollars, and everything was pronounced ready for the grand exposition. The electric current was turned on. The thing declined to go. Two years later the same thing was successfully worked out and patented by a man in the state of New York, and was at once sold for a huge sum of money and a royalty reserve besides. The drawings in the electrical journal showing the stages by which that inventor had approached the consummation of his idea, proving his way step by step as he went, were almost the twins of Page's drawings of two years before. It was almost as if the same hand had drawn both sets. Page said, we had had it, and we should have known it, if we had only tried an alternating current after failing with the direct current. Said he had felt sure, at the time, that at cost of a hundred dollars he could apply the alternating test and come out triumphant. Then he added, in tones absolutely sodden with self-sacrifice and just barely touched with reproach, but you had already spent so much money on the thing that I hadn't the heart to ask you to spend any more. If I had asked him why he didn't draw on his own pocket, he would not have understood me. He could not have grasped so strange an idea as that. He would have thought there was something the matter with my mind. I am speaking honestly he could not have understood it. A cancer of old habit and long experience could as easily understand the suggestion that it bored itself a while. In drawing contracts he is always able to take care of himself. In every instance he will work into the contract's injuries to the other party and advantages to himself which were never considered or mentioned in the preceding verbal agreement. In one contract he got me to assign to him several hundred thousand dollars worth of property for a certain valuable consideration, said valuable consideration being the re-giving to me of another piece of property which was not on his to give, but already belonged to me. I quite understand that I am confessing myself a fool, but that is no matter. The reader would find it out anyway as I go along. H. was our joint lawyer, and I had every confidence in his wisdom 
and cleanliness. Once, when I was lending money to Page during a few months, I presently found that he was giving receipts to my representative instead of notes. But that man never lived who could catch Page so nearly asleep as to palm off on him a piece of paper which apparently satisfied a debt when it ought to acknowledge a loan. I must throw in a parenthesis here, or I shall do H an injustice. Here and there I have seemed to cast little reflections upon him. Pay no attention to them. I have no feeling about him. I have no harsh words to say about him. He is a great, fat, good-natured, kind-hearted, chicken-livered slave, with no more pride than a tramp, no more sand than a rabbit, no more moral sense than a wax figure, and no more sex than a tapeworm. He sincerely thinks he is honest. He sincerely thinks he is honorable. It is my daily prayer to God that he be permitted to live and die in those superstitions. I gave him a twentieth of my American holding at Page's request. I gave him a twentieth of my foreign holding at his own supplication. I advanced nearly forty thousand dollars in five years to keep these interests sound and valid for him. In return, he drafted every contract which I made with Page in all that time clear up to September 1890 and pronounced them good and fair, and then I signed. Yes, it is as I have said, Page is an extraordinary compound of business thrift and commercial insanity. Instances of his commercial insanity are simply innumerable. Here are some examples. When I took hold of the machine, February 6, 1886, its faults had been corrected, and a setter and a justifier could turn out about 3,500 M's an hour on it, possibly 4,000. There was no machine that could pretend rivalry to it. Business sanity would have said, put it on the market as it was, secure the field, and add improvements later. Page's business insanity said, add the improvements first and risk losing the field. And that is what he set out to do. To add a justifying mechanism to that machine would take a few months and cost $9,000 by his estimate, or $12,000 by Pratt and Whitney's. I agreed to add said justifier to that machine. There could be no sense in building a new machine, yet in total violation of the agreement, Page went immediately to work to build a new machine, although aware, by recent experience, that the cost could not fall below $150,000, and that the time consumed would be years instead of months. 
well when four years had been spent and the new machine was able to exhibit a marvelous capacity we appointed the twelfth of january for senator jones of nevada to come and make an inspection he was not promised a perfect machine but a machine which could be perfected he had agreed to invest one or two hundred thousand dollars in its fortunes and had also said that if the exhibition was particularly favorable he might take entire charge of the elephant at the last moment page concluded to add an air blast afterward found to be unnecessary wherefore jones had to be turned back from new york to wait a couple of months and lose his interest in the thing a year ago page made what he regarded as a vast and magnanimous concession and said i might sell the english patent for ten million dollars a little later a man came along who thought he could bring some englishmen who would buy that patent and he was sent off to fetch them he was gone so long that page's confidence began to diminish and with it his price he finally got down to what he said was his very last and bottom price for that patent fifty thousand dollars this was the only time in five years that i ever saw page in his right mind i could furnish other examples of page's business insanity enough of them to fill six or eight volumes perhaps but i am not writing his history i am merely sketching his portrait i went on footing the bills and got the machine really perfected at last at a cost of about a hundred and fifty thousand dollars instead of the original thirty thousand dollars w tells me that page tried his best to cheat me out of my royalties when making a contract with the connecticut company also that he tried to cheat me out of all share of mr north inventor of the justifying mechanism but that north frightened him with a lawsuit threat and is to get a royalty until the aggregate is two million dollars page and i always meet on effusively affectionate terms and yet he knows perfectly well that if i had him in a steel trap i would shut out all human succor and watch that trap till he died note the machine in the end proved a complete failure being too complicated too difficult to keep in order it cost mark twain a total of about a hundred and ninety thousand dollars a b p end of section nine the machine episode written in the closing days of eighteen ninety